2: Welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really thrilled to have back with me today a fantastic guest who has been on the show before, uh, Callie Dayton. Listeners uh, who listen regularly will know that Callie was on a few years ago to talk about her incredible work with getting patients up and walking and mobilized in the ICU, even when they are intubated. And we had a really interesting discussion. And over the past few years, even through COVID, she's done even more amazing work on this. And so I'm really happy that she agreed to come back to the show to talk about what she's doing and how she's helping ICUs really across the country to engage in this really important work. So I'm excited to talk about it. Callie, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So let's start by uh, talking about what kind of transition has happened in your work over the past you know, few years since we talked last. You're really doing a ton of this. And just tell us a little bit about how that evolution happened.
1: Well, I started my career uh, 10 years ago as a brand new nurse in an awake and walk-in ICU. And I thought that was completely normal to have patients awake shortly after intubation. You know, most patients, there were some exceptions, but the protocol there is you don't even hang propofol after intubation and you just let them wake up and um, we mobilized them shortly after. And I thought that was, comp- I thought that was critical care medicine. Then after a few years, I became a travel nurse and I was shocked to find that that was the opposite in every other ICU I worked in. And they couldn't even fathom what I was talking about as far as having patients awake and walk into the ventilator. So that's when I really saw this huge gap in education. Um, even within myself, I knew how to take care of patients that were awake and walking, but I didn't know why I didn't understand patient perspective. So My experiences as a travel nurse in contrast to the awake and walking ICU really left me with this big question mark as to why are our practices so different and I could see the difference in outcomes as well. And so I returned to the awake and walking ICU during my doctorate studies and um, started working there as well as a nurse practitioner after. And I really started to dive into the research and I kept thinking if the ICU community knew um the research patient perspective i started talking to survivors i just kept feeling like we would make these changes if we understood the why and understood how much easier it is to care for patients this way so i started the podcast in um boy in the right at the beginning of 2020 not knowing that the pandemic was coming and then it hit and um it ended up just being mostly for the pandemic it was extremely relevant to have this discussion and to be exposing the research behind the ABCDF bundle, minimizing sedation, patient perspective, delirium, things like that during the pandemic. But it was obviously it was a hard time to adapt and to flip practices like that, though it would have been the most beneficial time to do it. But as the pandemic has improved, um, teams are suffering from the changes in practices that we experienced during the pandemic, the deep sedation, the um, complete immobility, and they're they're tired of it and they're this our system's broken in large part because of how we've treated patients and so now it's turned into um the opportunity to help teams change their practices so now I work as a consultant and I try to help ICU teams understand the why and the how um to create awaken walking ICUs
2: That's great um Really, really great work and important work. I want to touch on, you mentioned the ABCDEF bundle, and we're going to talk about that, but maybe just define that for people so we can have that um, established up front.
1: It's a a protocol, and this acronym stands for A, Assess and Manage Pain, B, Both Spontaneous and Awakening Trials, C, Choice of Analgesia and Sedation, E, Early Mobility, and F, Family Engagement, and We'll get into what the ultimate goal is, but it's, it's a just it's a protocol, but a very general outline to help us hopefully customize our approach to sedation and mobility management for each patient um, for the ultimate goal of having them um, and have the best chance to survive and thrive.
2: Great. Now, when you go around and you're doing this consulting, what do you see as kind of the spectrum of people? Using this bundle and and kind of uh, keeping to it, is it pretty widespread? Is it not? Is it vary based on you know location? What do you see?
1: Uh, I, I see a huge spectrum of compliance with the ABCDF bundle. Um, some teams are still running medazilim drips on most intubated patients and don't do awakening trials until weeks later. Once they have a, a tracheostomy, um, some do awakening trials only once the ventilator settings are minimal. Some do awakening trials most of the time. Some hardly ever sedate their patients and walk most of their patients. There's just a huge spectrum, even within the same kind of patient population, even within the same area. For example, in the Waking Walking ICU, uh, where it's located in Salt Lake City, there is a huge variation within that same city, even within that same hospital system. So it really depends on the team. And so I um, I see such a clear manifestation of the dose-dependent outcomes of the ABCF bundle. So teams that have the lowest compliance with ABCF bundle also have the longest length of stays, highest trache- rates of tracheostomies, highest mortality, readmission rates. They're the ones that are really feeling it the most, that are having the worst staff retention, morale, burnout, things like that. And I don't know what, you know, chicken or the egg, which comes first, but um, I see where They say in this recent 2019 ABCDF bundle study that the outcomes were dose-dependent, and I see that every time I talk to teams. Um, And so when they tell me we're having a really hard time um, getting our patients to LTAC because LTACs are full, we don't know how to rehabilitate these patients, I then ask, well, what are you sedating them with? How deeply are you sedating them? Um, How soon are you doing awakening the trials? I, I just I can already tell by their outcomes what their initial treatments are like.
2: Oh, well, that's really interesting. So you hear you hear about the outcomes, and then you can predict pretty accurately how how closely they're holding to this bundle, which is a lot about about what the bundle can do, right? Because um, you know, obviously this is evidence based, right? Wes Ely and and others have have really put a lot of work into publishing on this. So let's talk about the barriers. So you know, there's obviously, as you said, a wide spectrum. Some places are really doing this well; others are not doing it at all. What are the barriers to doing this that you find places struggling with?
1: So a lot of people will tell me we're too short-staffed, our patients are too sick, things like that. Um, But when you dive deeper into it, it's really down to education, cultural myths that we have. Um, We have a lot of misinformation in the ICU community. Um, Some of them include um, this belief that sedation is sleep that the discomfort and terror we see during awakening trials is primarily from the endotracheal tube. Um, that patients are as comfortable as they look or that the less they move, the less pain and anxiety they have. Um, a lot of nurses believe that sedation is more humane, that every patient should be sedated right after intubation. Because um, again, I think that they're sleeping. They think that they're spared the trauma and suffering um, during an ICU stay. Um, a lot of clinicians understand that awakening trials are just to check in on the patient, maybe try some mobility and then immediately turn it back on. And I think that comes down to using the word trial or vacation. Um, They also think that awakening trials are just for breathing trials. Once ventilator settings are low, that's common in a lot of ICUs that they don't even do awakening trials until it's time to see if they can extubate. Um, There's a fear that uh, mobility or decrease in sedation is high risk and dangerous Um, on any patient, on mechanical ventilation. And a lot of people think that early mobility is just too much work and not a big priority when you're just trying to get people to survive.
2: Yeah. I mean, those all ring true in terms of things I've heard people say. And, you know, uh, even things, and you, you may have mentioned this, but, you know, the fear of because I, I don't think anybody's out there saying, yes, I know this is better for patients, but I don't care about that, right? Mm-hmm. People want to do what's good for patients, but they they are, they do believe these things that you've said, including, you know, that if they try to walk people with tubes, the tube will come out, right? And therefore the patient will be harmed. And um, I mean, it's the same with constantly uh, restraining people who have are intubated, right? They'll pull out their tube and, and um, you know, that will be bad for them. So I think it's all driven by a desire to help it's just some of these um beliefs are not are not backed up by the evidence as you've said
1: absolutely um i i think when i tell people especially nurses um that i'm helping create awake and walking icus or that i've worked in an awake and walking icu they immediately imagine um delirious thrashing patients trying to get out of bed trying to pull their lines and tubes and that the whole icu is like that um and of course, there's no one's excited about that if that's the reality. What they haven't the experienced is what it's like to allow patients to wake up shortly after intubation when they don't have days, weeks of sleep. Well, sleep deprivation from sedation and delirium, and um, all the agitation and discomfort that comes from that. When they wake up shortly after intubation, most patients come out like it's a colonoscopy, right? We often give less sedation for intubation than we do for colonoscopy, and you can usually reason with them depending on what their... are um, diagnosis is that they have encephalopathy or delirium you know, prior to intubation. But even if they do have those things, the level of agitation, in my experience, is less than the agitation you experience during an awakening trial. So a lot of this fear and this misunderstanding comes from a lack of experience with it. When you start station on everyone automatically, you deprive the staff of the opportunity to connect with patients, have patients that are calm, oriented, reliable, that protect their own tracheal tube, that are strong enough to get out of the bed, they don't get to have that experience. And so I think that's where a lot of the misunderstanding and the fear comes from.
2: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Let's talk about some of the important things that you try to help people understand. So let's start again with the ABCDEF or A to F bundle. What what do you tell people is really the the idea and the vision of this bundle?
1: Yeah, this is so important because when I talk to teams, some of the member team members will say, oh yeah, we practice the ABCDF bundle. Meaning usually that they have it in their EMR system. They have an SAT, SVT, CAM, RAS requirement in their charting system. But they don't really practice the ABCDF bundle. And I think a lot of that is because they don't understand why it's important, what they're working towards and the vision of the ABCDF bundle, what the overall objective is. So in this... Um, recent 2019 study there was a really great commentary that clarified the purpose of the ABCDF bundle is to produce patients that are awake, cognitively engaged, physically active in order to facilitate patient autonomy and the ability to express unmet physical, emotional and spiritual needs. So really the objective is to have patients that would fit into an awake and walking ICU model. It's not to automatically start sedation, keep them comatose until it's time to try to extubate them. Um, That was a cultural application, I think. Um, I think we were too scared to just go all the way. We had all this research, all this knowledge, knowing how harmful sedation is, but we still were so afraid of patient safety, which is a whole other conversation because obviously sedation is unsafe, but we still just couldn't imagine them coming out being calm, oriented, or knowing how to manage them without sedation. So we continue to start sedation and then do awakening trials. But without this understanding that we're trying to have patients that are awake, autonomous, communicative, mobile, um, we have no compass, no guiding star to to navigate how to do awakening trials, why to do them, you know, how to mobilize patients. So really if we're practicing ABCDF bundle, we're going to ask after each intubation, does this patient have an indication for sedation? Because there are obviously times when it's absolutely essential, such as active seizures, intracranial hypertension, the inability to oxygenate with movement, extreme drug toxicity. Those are exceptions in which obviously we're going to have, going to, have to sedate a patient. And then the A to F bundle leads us to utilize the C, which is choice of analgesia and sedation. Then we have that discussion as to, What's the safest sedation we can use at the lowest dose? What's our rascal? That's going to guide us. Um, but otherwise, if we don't have to sedate a patient um, solely for mechanical ventilation, that is not an indication for, for sedation. There's nothing in the research that I've been able to find that says that you have to sedate a patient continuously after intubation. Um, yet we have vast research showing the harm of doing that but we've continued it. And again, I think that comes down to, um, not providing our teams, the knowledge and vision of patients being awake and mobile. Um, and so we've continued this cultural assumption. And then that, that influences us, influences us to resume sedation right away when we see agitation or discomfort during an waking trial. When I was a travel nurse, um, I finally learned about awakening trials. I mean, I had done ICU for years, but never learned awakening trials because it wasn't necessary in the waking walking ICU. So here I am, you know, probably my fifth contract, finally get to a facility where they do awakening trials. And I was taught that you just turn down sedation enough to see them start to move all their extremities. And you can see that they're agitated and uncomfortable. And you know that they can't quote, tolerate the ventilator and you turn sedation back on. And that was really confusing to me because when I had seen hundreds if not thousands of patients tolerate the endotracheal tube and be fine on the ventilator, I didn't know what was causing their agitation. I didn't know what their neuro status was. It was just so weird to me. But then that's just what we do, that we pass it on generation to generation in this assumption instead of talking to survivors and saying, what did you experience? Once you hear from survivors that they thought their kids were kidnapped, well, then it makes sense that they were trying to get out of bed. You couldn't keep me in bed if my kids were kidnapped in my mind, right? So it all comes down to our lack of understanding of delirium and ICU-acquired weakness and that that the objective of the A to F bundle is to prevent those conditions as well as treat them if they are unavoidable.
2: Yeah. And we also...
1: No, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, I, I just... Um, when we misunderstand that the, the this vision of the ADF bundle and the value and the difference it makes to outcomes, um, we create these lethal circumstance, these lethal circumstances for our patients. Um, so when I hear from teams, I know that improves outcomes. I know that you know patients are more, more likely to discharge home and things like that. But we can only focus on keeping them alive, right? That's that's always the thing. Um, our patients are too sick, and there are times when obviously when you're using a rapid transfuser and things are hot and heavy, that's that's an exception. But in the continuum of care in the ICU, if we're focused on keeping patients alive, then the ADF bundle is especially important. We know that the ADF bundle decreases seven-day mortality by 68%. 68%. Imagine if that was a medication, we'd have 100% compliance. And yet we're too busy focused on keeping patients alive to keep patients alive with the F bundle. It doesn't make sense, right? But it all comes down to our education. We don't talk about that at the bedside. We don't say, wow, this patient's sedated, they're you know, significantly increased risk of delirium, and we know that delirium doubles the risk of dying in the hospital, triples the risk of dying six months after the hospital, or um, while they have delirium, we better take off sedation, avoid sedation, because we know that for every one day of delirium, there's a 10% increased risk of dying. We don't say, hey, we need to especially apply the ADF bundle because it'll decrease delirium by 25 to 50%. Or we need to mobilize them because that will um, decrease the learning by 47%. We don't talk about those things. And usually it's because we're not even aware of them.
2: Right. No, and that's why education and what you're doing is so important. Let's talk about some of the barriers you mentioned. So one, you mentioned workload. How do you help people to um, get buy-in when they think, you know, we just don't have the staff or the work is it's going to be too much work?
1: Yeah, I think, again, this is rooted in our personal experiences. It is so much work to take sedation off of a patient that's been sedated for, I don't know, at least a few days. And they're strong enough to thrash, strong enough to try to get to their endotracheal tube. Um, but they're so confused and agitated and terrified, right? Um, again, that's why I hated the awakening trials as a nurse because it was just so such a burden on me, especially the way we've been doing them. Um, I know some teams I see that they're doing awakening trials at 5 o'clock in the morning. In a dark, isolated room. It's the end of a nurse's shift. They have so many things to do, but they turn down sedation. The patient comes out agitated. Um, They don't have family at the bedside, physical and occupational therapy to help them deal with that agitation, help them emerge from delirium. They're stuck on their own. It's unsafe. So here we are in the staffing crisis, and we're saying, okay, now unmask the delirium that we've created. Good luck, nurses. No one's going to want to do that. Absolutely not. And so I think that's where, again, we understand what the objective is, how to practice the ADF bundle, and then we do really do increase the workload, but we have to understand that delirium doubles the nursing hours required for care. So when we truly practice the ADF bundle, when we avoid sedation, when it's not necessary, we minimize the dose and duration, and we slash the delirium rates, then we reduce the hours of care required and the trauma and the hassle that we have always experienced with delirium. We also know that one episode of delirium can increase the length of stay by 10 days. How does that not increase the workload for our teams when we're stuck with patients and they're suffering all these, um, this whole sequela from the sedation? Um, whereas if we were to allow them to be wake, mobile, avoid delirium, avoid acquired weakness, get them off the ventilator substantially quicker, and have them be able to get them, their own selves, their own bodies out of bed, the workload just decreases drastically and also we have greater fulfillment and purpose and um, joy in our professions and that helps address the burnout and again builds up this excitement and this buy-in for this process of care. Um, we also know that bundle decreases IC readmission by 46 percent. That is huge and that alone decreases the workload for our teams. I think during COVID and even still um, a lot of the work was because we had this bottleneck of patients. We created this um, delirium, ICU weakness, then these tracheostomies, and we don't know how to rehabilitate those patients, so they're just stuck waiting in our ICUs. Well, LTAC is also overwhelmed, and that increases the workload, and also just the the morale is so low because it's it's very depressing to care for that kind of patient. But we can avoid even creating that scenario um, when we talk about early mobility. The general assumption that that means that it is like six people trying to dangle a large, confused, flaccid adult with severe polyneuromyopathy after days to weeks of sedation and mobility um, and now can't even hold their own heads up. Yeah, that's a lot of work for our teams. Those are I- – I've experienced those scenarios. And, and, but in the wake and walk I see that is extremely rare. And in all honesty, that's usually because they come from outside facilities and we're trying to clean up the mess, right? But – What they haven't often experienced is how easy it is to get a patient out of bed when it's actually early and actually progressive mobility. So, for example, a lot of patients um, can, if they walk into the hospital, for example, even in the COVID ICU, in that awake and walk in ICU, they had a COVID ICU. So, patients are coming to the hospital hypoxic, obviously severe work of breathing, um, but a lot of times they've walked into the hospital in the, Saturday in the 70s, right? So we intubate them. Now they have supported um, oxygen and respiratory um, status. They don't have to work so hard to breathe. Well, if they walked in the hospital, why can't they walk on the ventilator now that they don't have to work so hard to breathe and they're actually oxygenated? So that's what that's what we did throughout the, the pandemic is we would let them wake up and mobilize shortly after. And um, unless they couldn't oxygenate with movement, that was a threshold that would require pronation Sedation paralysis. Otherwise, we kept them mobile and moving, and that made it so much easier. Nurses could be in the room with a patient and just be a standby assist holding the tubing while they got themselves into the chair. Physical therapy could work with them alone, doing sit to stand squats, walking around the room, scooting around the ventilator behind them while they walk themselves. That is so much easier. That is early mobility for the most part, but that's what teams haven't experienced. And so I think we can really avoid a lot of unnecessary work and um, burden by focusing on the timing of these interventions. And it becomes a skill set. uh, When we started ProNation at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was so overwhelmed by it. Um, It took so many people. We had to think through every little step. And now we flip them like pancakes. That's what early mobility becomes um, as we develop that that skill set and comfort.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say is it it seems so crucial that just like you gave the great example of proning but so much of this is a misunderstanding of what we're talking about because it's not the same as you have pointed out a couple of times to wake someone up after hours or days or weeks of sedation versus minutes of sedation after they've been intubated and uh, or if they're arriving from the OR you know intubated but it's uh, it's a very different thing and so maybe what part of what's needed here is you're suggesting is for people to understand that difference and to give it a, a try to wake people up early and see that actually, just like when we wake people up in the OR, they may have a few seconds or minutes as they're coming, coming to of being a little agitated, but it resolves, right? It's not, it's not hours or days of agitation. So that's a really interesting point. Um, you've mentioned a few times the, um, uh, importance of doing awake breathing trials, obviously, if you're never keeping uh, patients um, or, or awakening trials, if you're never doing, if you're not sedating patients, you don't have to worry about it. Um, but let's talk about, um, you know, for, for patients who are sedated, obviously, one one plan would be just get them off sedation, leave them off. But do you want to say anything else about spontaneous breathing trials and spontaneous awakening trials? Like what, what you counsel people in terms of how to think, think about those?
1: Yeah, this absolutely has to be um, an integrated part of Rounds. Um, I, I think obviously we love to systemize everything, have it be a very clean, organized algorithm that applies to every patient. We love that, right? And, and that's for the most part very efficient and effective for a lot of our protocols. And, and this can be as well. I just think we need to also systemize asking do they need to be sedated at the beginning? Now, if the answer is yes initially, then I think the algorithm goes down to um, reassessing every shift and even throughout the shift if that indication for sedation is still present. Um, and if it is, we need to be communicating that in rounds. So, you know, intracranial hypertension, for, for example, obviously that's going to necessitate a period of sedation. Um, we need to communicate that throughout the team every round, saying this patient is um, sedated because of the, the high pressures, And then even give a goal so we know what we're working towards. So once pressures are maintained within this certain range for this amount of time, then we will do an awakening trial and monitor the response. And not just that for agitation, but what does their ICP do during that break? um, Very Specify what a failed criteria is. I think we, and I see on the protocols that failed criteria is agitation. That can be a spectrum. Obviously, if someone's a RAS of four, You're going to need some sedation, which I can give a case study about that later on, too, because we can use sedation to help facilitate mobilization and help emerge them from delirium um, as long as we use it appropriately. But what we usually resume sedation for is any kind of movement or signs of discomfort. And they say, well, they're agitated Um, or, yeah, they're going for the endotracheal tube. What we don't provide our teams with is how to respond to that. So as nurses, like, just like I was taught, you resume sedation. That's that's the best solution that they, they, they feel. What should be provided are the other tools as far as do an awakening trial when family's present, um, have physical and occupational therapy available so they can get them up and mobilize and help them work through the agitation, help them connect with their environment, reorient, um, wear themselves out, so even if they still are delirious and confused, they're they're worn out and they can actually get real sleep. But when we believe that sedation is sleep, more humane, more comfortable, right? When we see discomfort, we're going to fix it with sedation. So I, it, there's just so much behind it, but a lot of it's, again, our education, our understanding of what patients are experiencing, and then the personal experience of working through agitation. So um, for example, um, we, we got this Young woman, she was 32 years old. She had a history of um, benzodiazepine alcohol dependence. She um, was admitted for alcohol leukopenic uh, pneumococcal sepsis to an outside facility. So she was in septic shock. She was in, at the end of alcohol withdrawal when she came to that outside facility, spent a week immobilized, sedated on the mechanical ventilation, and um, her septic shock was worsening. They were preparing to discontinue care. And the family had her transferred to the wake and walking ICU. So when she showed up, she was still on one or two vasopressors, deeply sedated with midazolam, um, and was on a peep of 16 and I think 70 or 80%. And so she was pretty sick. But we also recognized that she was malnourished at baseline. She had all these risk factors for delirium and iso chord weakness. Like her chance for survival depended on her being awake and mobile. That was going to be the best thing for her brain, her body, her lungs, everything. So we did an awakening trial and she came out thrashing Again, it's not common that we even see that kind of agitation because patients don't get that confused or that delirious. So we had to resume sedation um, because she was a RAS of four, but we, we transitioned to um, understanding that she needed benzodiazepines, obviously. We did clonopendemic her feeding tube, but transitioned to propofol and Presidex so we could get her more to a RAS of one or zero. The goal was to get her mobilized. So we used that to help her harness her, her agitation for a minute, mobilized her. She was completely confused. She told me in a podcast interview that she woke up walking and it probably wasn't her first walk. It was probably her third or fourth walk because she was so confused and extremely weak, but walking the minutes later helped her start to connect. She started to ride on a board, talk to her family. She asked important questions like, where's my daughter? Where's my dog? And and that really helped me understand why she was so panicked. She had PTSD baseline. That's why she had been sedating alcohol dependence. She was reliving that trauma in her mind over and over again. So, of course, she came out thrashing and couldn't understand. But as we started this cycle of walking her, she'd sleep. We turned off sedation after that first walk. We didn't even need Presidex after that. She was so worn out. So she would get real sleep, wake up a little anxious. We'd walk her. She'd sleep. We'd walk her. Her delirium cleared out. She didn't need to be restrained. She ended up having a peep of 18, 100% cavitary pneumonia with a chest tube, ARDS. Nonetheless, she was still walking. Her pain, she could dictate how she needed her pain managed through fentanyl infusions. Um, She walked out of there. After three plus weeks of being on mechanical ventilation, she walked out of there independently breathing. So um, that... Was an awakening trial. Instead of saying, "Oh, she's agitated," she's that's a failed. She has to be sedated for the next few days until her, or even weeks. I mean, her maybe her ventilator settings would never would have decreased had she not been mobilized. So I don't know, but if that's our criteria, that's that we have to have a peep of net less than ten and FiO2 less than sixty percent. Boy, she would have been locked in there forever and probably would have had very different outcomes.
2: Yeah, and you know, I love the case examples are are such powerful ways to demonstrate this, and I think. You've got a couple others you're going to share, so why don't we turn to that. Tell us about some example cases that kind of illustrate some of these these things we've been talking about. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
2: All right, and we're back with Callie Dayton and more case examples.
1: Um, Yeah, another example is um, one of our first patients um, in the COVID ICU. He was a 69-year-old that um, came in for COVID and acute respiratory failure and was intubated. For the first six days, he was awake and walking on the ventilator in his room, texting his wife. Um, you know, he doesn't remember that, but yet he was cam negative. Um, so COVID was just a weird thing where he obviously was neurologically affected, but he was still safe um, in his room because he was not delirious. Um, and so despite those six days of mobilization, he hit that cytokine storm. He needed to be supine, but he could still oxygenate with movement. So he basically turned himself that made proning so much easier too. patients could prone themselves. Um, And he was unsedated and then lightly sedated for about two days, but then worsened required paralysis, deep sedation for six days. So in total, he was on his stomach for eight days. Um, And we kept doing the supine trials. And once we could see that he was um, okay being supine, then it was time to do an awakening trial. And the purpose of that awakening trial was to see, can he oxygenate with movement? Once, we could see he could oxygenate his movement, there was no longer an indication for sedation. So sedation was off and he came out delirious and he was agitated. Um, but he tells, told me on a podcast interview that he had, was living this terrible scenario in his mind, thought his wife was in danger. So of course he was agitated, but instead of saying, oh, he's agitated, we have to resume sedation. This is again, even during COVID physical therapy was in there right away, had him on his feet right away. And he was pretty weak. Eight days of paralysis and sedation, you lose a lot of muscle and neuromuscular connection. Nonetheless, they quickly started rehabilitating him. Four days after being able to be supine, he was extubated. And 10 days after that, he discharged home, where he continued to rehabilitate at home. Um, But for his 70th birthday, six weeks after discharge, he went golfing. Eight weeks after discharge, he walked eight miles at 70 years old, a severe COVID ARDS survivor walked eight miles, eight weeks after discharge. How different his outcomes would have been had we, one, sedated him from the very beginning. Had we sedated him from the very beginning, um, we could not have mobilized him so quickly, right? He would have been so weak even quicker. Um, he probably would have been prone to paralyzed quicker. We, there is some evidence to show that um, muscular atrophy fuels and maybe even causes ARDS. So, um We were finding a lot of elements, but again, that was an approach to the ABCDF bundle. Many patients, many COVID patients didn't have to be prone and paralyzed. Many didn't reach that point. And I wonder how much of that had to do with the minimalization of muscular atrophy. Nonetheless, those that did have to be prone and paralyzed, that's when the awakening trials finally came into play. Otherwise, there really weren't awakening trials, even their COVID ICU. Yeah,
2: that's such a powerful story and and emblematic of how important this is. It is... You know, as you're telling the story, and I imagine, okay, it's finally time to try waking him up. He wakes up and he's agitated, and uh, I just think it's in so many places the response to that is going to be, oh, he he can't, you know, he's agitated, he's a danger, he's going to pull, he's going to pull his tube out, he's yeah. going to pull his lines out, he's too agitated. We need to sedate him. Whereas what you guys did is you you got him up walking, right? I mean, that is, um, it's so interesting. it's, a, it's just a completely different response to. Uh, emergence agitation and one that it sounds like has been very powerful for for your practice Um,
1: there's a there's a little saying um from dr beninati there he says um walk when sluggish walk when wild so i was just on site with the team earlier this week so this is fresh in my mind um they've made a lot of progress this is my second visit with them and um I showed up bracing myself for awakening trials at five in the morning and hardly anyone needed an awakening trial because they were already off sedation, which was yeah. so fulfilling and exciting for me. But there was a new newer nurse there that got a new admit. Um, while I was there, I saw this patient roll in on BiPAP. Um, he was intubated for COPD exacerbation. Um, he was wheelchair dependent at baseline. Um, and uh, propofol was automatically hung. And so they still hadn't gotten to that point. I think they were doing much earlier awakening trials, which was still making it easier. But I wanted them to experience what it was like to let them wake up right after and mobilize right away. Because I knew that that's, that is how we're going to make this sustainable. If we keep these awakening trials at very subjective, variable points and we're still trying to do the cleanup, it's just going to – it becomes muddy and it's still difficult. So I went in and the nurse was like, I don't know about that. He was just intubated. And I, and I posed the question – but what, what is his need for sedation? Why does he need to be sedated? And, and you could tell it was, it was just a new question. It was a new thought. Um, you know, we just don't ask that. So she's like, I guess I don't, because he's intubated. And we talked about that that is not a reason to be sedated. So um, and I said, we're here. So I, we brought in occupational physical therapy. Um, we took off sedation. And again, he was hypercapnic. You know, he was pretty obtunded when he first arrived. So he was sluggish. Um, and then he became a little bit agitated. He did not like that tube, obviously, but he couldn't understand what it was. So physical occupational therapy got him into a chair. Um, because again, he wasn't mobile at baseline and, um, that stimulation, that movement, that mobility helped him merge from the emergence agitation, but also helped him. Um, I'm sure along with the ventilator clear out from the hypercapnia, obviously. And so two hours after intubation, while we're doing this, the team's rounding, they come around, the residents, the doctors, the whole the whole multiple, multidisciplinary team is outside his door and he's waving at them, giving them a thumbs up, writing his name on the clipboard and clarifying his last name. We had his last name wrong, <laughs> which how important is that to get someone's name correct, right? How would we know who he was? So um, they were just shocked. Their jaws dropped. It was just a paradigm shift. Wait, we just intubated this guy. You know, He was barely able to open his eyes uh, before we intubated him. But shouldn't he be sedated? But I guess he doesn't have to be. It was just, it's all a paradigm shift. So walk when wild, walk when sluggish or any kind of mobility, that is the response. That's the tool. And until we um, appreciate that as such an effective tool, we're really doing everyone a disservice, but especially nurses. They should not have to deal with that alone.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I love it. I love that that is just this completely, for a lot of people, counterintuitive, but but you know, powerful approach to doing this differently. How... How do you advise leaders, uh, ICU team leaders, uh, nursing leaders, uh, ICU medical directors, um, if they want to help their teams? I mean, I I imagine you must meet people who say, I want to do this, right? I mean, I know the evidence. I want us to do it in my ICU, but I can't make it happen. What do you, how do you recommend that they help support their teams in making this happen?
1: Um, I think it requires a, a proper analysis of the barriers. Every team has different barriers. Some teams have tons of buy-in from the top. Um, and they're trying to get the rest of their team to buy in. Sometimes they have more buy-in from um the like some lone physical therapist than the rest of the team or some lone nurses versus the rest of the team. So it depends on who's approaching me. It's um how do we help get your leaders to have buy-in or how do we help get the bedside nurses to have buy-in? So that that really um impacts our approach. But ultimately again it comes down to the education and then Um, just giving people personal experiences with it. So I start with webinars, and I think it's important to give them a vision. We don't even have a vision of what we're working towards with the ADF bundle. Otherwise, without that vision, it's just a checklist. It's just a task list. And that's partially why the implementation has been so poor, because we don't know the why, and we can't critically think through um, each case. So I think providing those tools and that education is really important, and then, um, so I won't usually even go on site until um, a team's done the webinars because um, it's too much to explain at the bedside. My purpose in being there is to then focus on that how, but we can't do that until we understand the why. Um, and then I think it's been really helpful to do simulations. Um, we do simulations for so much. Why not simulating helping a patient wake up or even just mobilizing patients? where We're really nervous about all of the equipment and that's fair because it requires some experience. So why not practice with a fake patient, right? So um I like going through real scenarios, um, case studies like the ones I've shared, um, and letting helping them think through. Um, so I do, you know, letting a patient wake up at right after invasion or do an awakening trial. How do you deal with that kind of agitation? And we have all sorts of RAS and CAM scores in these scenarios. And so Just practicing that and that critical thinking and having each discipline present and learning how to work together, learning what each discipline has to offer those tools. I don't think most people even know that occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy are the ones to call for delirium. When the pandemic started, I had a float nurse on the unit block the door, um, against our physical therapist and said, oh, no, no, she's she's too delirious. She can't work physical therapy today. And the physical therapist came to me so confused and said, I've never had that happen. Um, I am the treatment. It's like saying they're too infected for an antibiotic, right? So in those kind of scenarios that we can really apply that knowledge and see how to practice that. And then we can pick some easy cases within our own real patient population. Um, someone, Some that we know that are going to be clear wins. Um, You know, lower ventilator settings, not so acute. um, And let the team experience what it's like to have a patient awake and mobile. I think just seeing it, seeing them walk through the halls, it just starts that paradigm shift and builds that excitement, seeing the improvement in outcomes. Then each individual starts asking, okay, who else can we apply this to? That was amazing. That was exciting. This is what I got into medicine for. That buy-in builds and increases. And over time, we then start to fear sedation we start to fear immobility more than we fear self-extubations which by the way the adaf bundle in this 2019 study had the same amount of self-extubations but re-intubations were far less so we start with this understanding of what's safer what's best and then that connects with the clinician's desires to have patients succeed and they feel confident that they have the tools to do that.
2: Yeah. I love that. I remember talking to Wes Ely about this, that statistic that there are more, there are the same number of self-extubations, but way fewer <laughs> re yeah. which is just fantastic. I mean, it's like clearly we, when when someone can take their tube out, they may be right. And if we don't immediately put it back in and, and sedate them, then they may just do just fine.
1: And the Wake and Walk in ICU went over two years before COVID without any self-extubations. And hardly anyone was sedated. Now, when we started having some more patients sedated, and also there were more factors, no family presence, um, isolation, we had more delirium, and then more self-extubations. We know that delirium um, increases the chances of unplanned extubations by 11 times. So when when we think about decreasing restraint use, um, some teams understand that physical restraints can increase the risk of post-ICU PTSD, but they don't understand the role of delirium and sedation in that. So they increase sedation as a chemical restraint so that they don't use physical restraints. So that's been a barrier. Some teams say, well, we, we don't have physical restraints. It's not allowed here. And, and that that's scary to me. I mean, that, that means that everyone's so sedated that they don't move a muscle. Right, right. Um, so it, again, it comes down to the the understanding. Um.
2: All right. So obviously you've emphasized the importance of education, showing people this can be done, whether it's through videos, webinars, uh, case case, um, studies like the ones that you've talked about, um, making sure people understand it's doable, showing people how it works. Um, what about, do you, do you recommend that ICUs, uh, have kind of champions who kind of are the local leaders who take this on and, and really kind of push for it?
1: Absolutely. Every discipline is vital to this process. So when we, um, go to implement this, we have, um, obviously a multidisciplinary approach and especially interdisciplinary approach. So, um, when you develop this task force, it's important to have speech, occupational, physical therapy, dietitians, pharmacists, respiratory therapy, nurses, APPs, MDs, however your team is structured. Um, and if you don't have those people in place, some ICUs don't have a critical care pharmacist present. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. Um, some don't even have occupational therapists assigned to the ICU. I think that's a huge part of it. And so that's part of the barrier, actually, um, is the buy-in from the top sometimes to support this process of care. Um, and, and then people will say, well, I I tried. We talked to our, our higher-ups, the C-suite, and I said, we just don't have the resources for this. And that blows my mind. And so that leads me sometimes to do a financial discussion with these higher-ups to discuss the financial benefits of it. Um, I guess, so I'm probably going on tangent, but but with that, we can discuss that delirium increases healthcare costs by 40%. ICU acquired weakness increases costs by 30.5%. We know that the ADF bundle decreases even in lesser doses. Obviously, there's a spectrum of compliance, right? So even without a full awake and walking approach, the ADF bundle decreases costs by 24 to 30%. Um, and it decreases, discharges the care facilities by 36%. So episode 95 of my podcast really dives into this, but ultimately we can't afford not to do this. So if we don't have, again, the resources that the funding to develop a task force, we don't have those disciplines present. We really need to look at the structure of the ICU and, and then the fin- finances of it and say, are we really investing the resources into what's most productive? Um, because ultimately this will drastically decrease costs, improve retention, workplace environment, all those things. That our healthcare system needs in order to heal and survive through all of this.
2: Yeah, that is so important. And you know, you you've cited these just incredible statistics over the course of our discussion here: 68% mortality reduction. You know, even without f- full compliance, 25% cost savings, reduction in uh, discharge to uh, acute care facilities, uh, decreased length of stay. I mean, all of these incredibly important outcomes. And it sounds like it. And I do want to make sure people know about your podcast. You've mentioned. You, it sounds like you have an episode, episode 95, which which gives a lot of this data in more detail. Uh, just give people the name, Callie, of your podcast if they want to find it. It's
1: called Walking Home from the ICU. And that's the goal. That's what we can work towards, having patients walk themselves out the doors and go home.
2: Great. Walking home from the ICU. It's great that you're doing. I think you had just started it when we talked last and now 95 at least, I mean, or more.
1: 110 now.
2: 110. That's amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So really great resource for people interested in doing this more. Um, and then of course, you know, we we want people to um, track their data. I'm sure you recommend this, right? Is that ideally, uh, if people do this, they will find what the evidence suggests they should find, which is, all of the things we just said: a reduction in mortality, a decrease in costs, an increase in in, in patient uh, improving patient outcomes, and and you want people to collect that data so they can see that and then you know kind of confirm up that buy in.
1: Absolutely, yep. So sometimes they say, "Well, we don't have physical therapist enough physical therapists to walk all of our patients." Um, so in order to get the buy in to get more physical therapists. You need to show that you have more patients that are appropriate for physical therapy. If they're deeply sedated, you're not going to get more physical therapists. Um, You just can't validate that if you don't have the patients um, available to work with them. And so, showing even just that you're working, you're improving outcomes with a little done. So, if you can only have patients awake and in the chair, um, that will improve your outcomes and you can show them hey, we're saving you money you need to improve this, but you know, it depends on, again, depends on your leadership. Some say, I can see the data. I can see the research here. I know that that will apply to our hospital. Let's just hire them right away. Let's, you know, do what it takes now. But if they're required, there's more data um, required for their ICU specifically Then having a baseline tracking it throughout helps get that buy. in it also helps the clinicians understand um, their success. So we were doing a debriefing with this team earlier this week showing the improvement. And we could see the graphics up on the board saying, look at how your length of stay has decreased. Your discharge disposition has changed. Your delirium rates are decreased. And we celebrated it. So that's, um, I think, really important too. And to share that data. I think it's really important to keep the whole team in communication. So you have champions that are leading their own discipline that are present, but they need to also be sharing the good things. So I, I encourage people to do case study when they find how the successes get pa- patient authorization for their pictures to be taken. Imagine patients are awake, they're autonomous, they can sign their own um, authorization saying yes, please use my picture. And most patients, I, I don't think I've ever had a patient say no, they're excited, they want to dedicate their experience to to the to the team, right. Um, and so that's why on my Instagram, and my website, I have a lot of patient images, because they've freely given authorization. But then we can make those into case studies, send them out to the rest of the team and say, hey, look at this patient that was showered while intubated. This is what happened and this is um, how their outcomes turned out. And so having the data and those specific case studies keeps the whole team engaged and aware and excited about the process.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I. The idea of, of getting a shower while intubated is fantastic. I love that image. um, And I can see how powerful that would be to have pictures, uh, you know, or, or at least a description. I mean, obviously, you know, got to be careful with uh, pictures of someone getting a shower. But, you know, uh, just the idea of it happening is so interesting.
1: Absolutely. And I, I have a picture of a patient, just a ventilator outside the shower sure. room. That's as far as I've gotten. <laughs>
2: perfect. Perfect. Um, well, Callie, you know, this is so fantastic. And, and we already said people who want more information uh, will put um, articles and links in the show notes that they can check out. Obviously, your podcast, um, which we mentioned, and, uh, you know, anything else you want to point people toward if they want to learn more about this?
1: Yeah, when we're talking about educating our teams, that's what I hope the podcast would be used for. Obviously, on my website, under the resources tab, there's the podcast for clinicians. I have another podcast for families which I think is really helpful to provide for families right away because it gives an introduction to the ICU, their role in the ICU team, information about delirium and um, mobility, things like that, so that you don't have to spend all the time explaining to them how they can help their loved ones. So there's that podcast, but under that resources tab, the Clinician Podcast has the transcriptions and citations for each episode. If you scroll down, um, those 110 episodes thus far are organized by topics. So if you want your team to hear... um, patient testimonials about what it's like to be sedated, go to that topic. If you want to send out episodes about delirium, go to that topic, or you want respiratory therapists to hear episodes from respiratory therapists, go to that topic. So um, I've organized it by theme so that you can clearly find what you need and share that with whoever needs to hear it.
2: That's great. And let's say people say, you know, this all sounds great, but I don't have the bandwidth to do it. I want Callie to come and do it for us. How, How do they get you to come consult?
1: That is my hope, right? So that, um, it's daunting. I think that's, again, one of the barriers, even leadership, they can say that's a really nice idea. I believe it. I want that to happen. I just have never practiced that way. I didn't know where to start. Um, that's where I've formulated this educational package that I can customize to your patient population. You know, CVIC is going to have some different education needs than MSIC or trauma, right? So, I can come in and customize that. And I also have other experts with me, um, that can come on site. So I have a CBIC a physical therapist, CVICU nurse practitioner that can come and have so much experience within those specialties. And, um, we can come help guide you as a leader, um, to get your whole team on board and systematically uh, adapt this practice. And because the barriers are specific for each, each team. And so, um, on my website, there's a consultation button, and I'm happy to talk about this um, and discuss and formulate a plan with you. And then um, we can we can make plans to do some consulting.
2: That's awesome. Thanks so much, Callie. All right. This has just been awesome. And the work you're doing is incredible putting this into action. You know, what I love is that we often talk about all the research behind this, the data, how important it is. But what you've done is instead of just talking about the data, you have actually made it your career really at this point to go around and help do the translation, put it from research into practice, and you're seeing those results. And I hope more and more places will see that as well. So thanks for all you're doing.
1: And I will Sue, now that you're talking about going beyond the data, patient testimonials are so important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that can even speak louder than the research. If you go to my YouTube channel, Dayton SC Consulting, There is a section with patient testimonials, videos from patients. Um, Please listen to them. They will move your teams more than I can.
2: Yeah, I believe that. All right, let's turn to the last part of our show where we make random recommendations. Callie, what would you recommend? Um, I know you're incredibly busy, so you're probably not watching a ton of TV, but what would you recommend people check out if uh, they have the time?
1: Of course, I'm hyper-focused, super obsessed, but the last book I've listened to is Wes Ely's Every Deep Drawn Breath. Um, I think that really captures, that really encapsulates a lot of my podcast content. Actually, we even organized, he organized his book like I did my podcast. It's, um, we didn't even plan that out. So, um, I highly recommend that be shared with your team. I've, um, provided that for leaders of the IC teams, help get buy-in and help, um, them understand what the problem is that we're addressing. So. Um, that's my world right now, my kids and, and this project.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's great. And that book, Every Deep down Breath, I completely agree. Really powerful. Um, listeners can check out my interview with um, Wes Ely about that book that he wrote, as well as uh, a lot of the same concepts we've talked about today. So really, really powerful. Definitely worth reading. Um, I will recommend a book. So this was a book that was recommended to me by one of my residents, Tim Kaitura, and uh, he uh, recommended The Thursday Murder Club. Uh, and it's a murder mystery, but unlike probably any other you've ever read, uh, it, it it took a little while to kind of get into uh, just it's written in a kind of slightly different way than usual. But it's really interesting. It's, believe it or not, about a, a group of 80 something uh, retirees in England who live in a retirement home and they uh, have these interesting backgrounds. You know, one was a former uh, spy. One was a former you know police officer. One was a former nurse. One was a former psychologist. And they come together and um, try to solve murders uh, and uh, kind of on their own uh, using whatever they can find. And it's really, really interesting. I'm actually not fully done with it. There's several of them. I'm on the first one that he recommended and haven't gotten through it completely yet. But I, I really it's it's a fun read. It's funny. It's well written. Um, so thanks to Tim for recommending that. And, and I'll second his recommendation. So the Thursday Murder Club. Um, all right, Callie, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks so much.
2: All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreoncom acrac, That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/accrac, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypalme acrac. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple.